Hello and welcome to Listen Carefully. I'm your host Nathan Jolly and my guest today is John Scott from The Mark of Cain. The Mark of Cain's third album, Ill at Ease, re-entered the charts at number 40 earlier this month. Considering it came out in 1995 and previously debuted at 73, this is pretty exceptional for the band. We start by talking about that record but soon move on to the rest of the catalogue. Ill at Ease, re-released, remastered, you guys are touring it. Yep. How do you feel about that record 28 years later? Yeah, um, we were supposed to tour it for the 25th anniversary. We were supposed to do it straight after um, Battlesick one, which was 30 years. Um, at, uh, but then uh, COVID came along. It's great playing it. I mean, we often play probably 60 70% of those songs at a gig yeah. anyway, whether yeah. it's, yeah, well, whether we're playing, whether they come in the main form or as an encore or whatever. Um, so, yeah, really it was about dust. It was, it was taking dusting off about four that we hadn't played that much, um, you know, in the intervening years. So that it was just good. In fact, going out and doing it is actually really pleasurable because, <laughs> um, there's always a bit of a catalogue to go through. And when we go on tour, unless it's for something specific, you know, it's always, oh, should we do this? Should we do that? Oh. And then you've got to go fucking work it out sometimes and, you know, <laughs> deconstruct something you did 20 years ago, which doesn't necessarily, muscle memory doesn't necessarily remember it all. So it's great. From my point of view, I love it. It's a, it's a very, very familiar, and, you know, record and the, 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 everything's familiar. And, and, and it's a great bunch of songs to play as well so yeah i'm totally looking forward to it and how do you feel about the actual record itself really good because obviously you're listening to yourself as a younger man like how do you oh, yeah feel? yeah 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 i don't feel like there's that much. i don't know for me it's not a huge not a huge thing i mean i question how the fuck i got so old but um <laughs> um i, I don't I, I don't necessarily go oh yeah that was that was when i was uh, whatever however old I was. Um, and I just listened to it. To me, it's still contemporary sound. Um, and, um, well, well, contemporary from the point of view, it certainly hasn't got auto-tune like all the shit that's around at the moment. But yeah. um, we tweaked it from a point of view. When we say we remastered it, it was just basically him and I had already had a talk years ago. We'd wanted to fix what we saw as a, call it a tombra <laughs> in the, in the snare, and um, we managed to do that. So, um, with some of the software that's available, we we kept the mix obviously because we didn't want to touch that because that was that was you know Rollins's whole vision. Um, but we at least were able to bolster the snare a bit in in that mix. And so I reckon, yeah, it's great. It's it's sitting exactly where I I would have liked it to have been twenty eight years ago. Not that that takes away from where it was then. But very happy with it. Because that album came at, at a weird point for you. So you guys had been around for quite a while. You'd put out two albums before. Yeah. But you'd also just signed to Ruart, which was, for all intents and purposes, a major label. Yeah. How was that shift? Yeah, um, it, a lot of it was happenstance. And and sometimes I always say there's a, a, a pre-Nirvana, post-Nirvana sort of, you know, watershed moment that we were around, you know, before that whole 90 1990-91 thing but during that time we were taking a break I was overseas working and so was my brother 
And when we came back and really started playing again in late 92, it, it was really like we, for a lot of people anyway, that was a, we were a new band. Right, yeah. So, so I, I think that's where... Anyway, that's my read of it. That so we were there, and 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 so we weren't really carrying necessarily the what might have been baggage of like, oh, these guys are from the fucking eighties, because we were, yeah, you know, yeah, eighty eight, eighty nine, even you know be, before that. So I think that we were just in the right time, and also you remember like uh, Helmet came out, and it was there was a similar sort of sound that we had been doing. Um, and I don't know if people go. <laughs> bullshit but you know just talk to john stanier from helmet and he'll tell you he's in agreement we joined your band yeah exactly that it was just weird that we came from you know two different places in the world that had a, had a similar sort of riffy type approach to stuff um because i can remember hearing helmet when i was overseas i was, I was working in tel aviv and, and uh, some friends over there who i'd met musicians and who then knew my band from the earlier records, I remember one of them coming and saying, have you heard this? You know, it was strap it on. And it was like, these guys sound like you. And so that was my first introduction to Helmet was back there in 1990, I guess, or 91, whenever that came out. And, yeah, look, everything was, that was that flavour, you know. And um, I think there was just um, enough interest in us at that time. Uh, we were a few bands who were, like, playing sort of that sort of music. We were fortunate that Nick Talek from Ruart took an interest in us and, um, yeah, got that signing. It, it, it's, there, was, there was no grand design. It was, a lot of it was happenstance and, and good luck and people who knew people, like, you know, yeah, I don't know. It was good, though. Yeah, so you have no kind of – it was a good experience for you being on a major label then, was it? Yeah, look, you really noted the difference. I mean, when you'd have to do – anything from radio or anything it was just done so it, you know it wasn't this sort of it was very professional and people were like you need to be here you need to be there and all of a sudden you're you know turning up on sort of more mainstream um radio stations even which was weird for us i mean we, we didn't feel comfortable doing that because it was just like <laughs> what the fuck are we on a mainstream radio station but yeah they definitely you can see how the um the major labels just have a lot more reach you know when you're you're doing it hard by yourself, um, so you could definitely appreciate it. It was just a little bit more smoother and you were treated a little bit better. And you mentioned Nirvana before. Mm. You guys also got to Albini before they did. Oh, yeah, sure. Yeah. 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 Um, did he – so I can't I can't work out. Did he produce that entire EP for you guys or did he produce the single? No, he – so what happened was – when we played with um, Big Black and I sort of, again, made friendships and he was like, guys, if you ever, you know, want me to produce something, I'm happy to do it. Um, and it was just, again, uh, good happenstance. I'm overseas. Kim's in the States, in Huntsville, Alabama. And we've got these songs that we never really did, that we'd recorded, that we hadn't really done a final, any final mix with. So, yeah, it was just let's do that with our beanie while we've got the opportunity. So I think Kim rang him up. Um and now being his usual, you know, I'm eating. <laughs> then you go, fuck, when do I ring him back? Do I ring him back in five minutes or 30 minutes or so? Um, but I remember going there and meeting him and, yeah, he was great. You know, he went um, to his place and we, st we started working on it. And he was um, – I, I found him actually – I found that more intimidating than working with Rollins. Rollins was really – 
quite easy, I found, to work with. Um, I think Albini, because he was a guitarist I really look up to, I was a, I was a little bit of a like, well, fuck, I've got to play something in front of Steve Albini, you know. <laughs> um, but, yeah, and that was great. He's very, very interesting guy and interesting to work with. Yeah, very clear ethics about things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know where you stand with him. Yeah, he's yeah. not a producer. He's an engineer. He won't yeah. take points on albums. Yeah, it's great. Yeah, and 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 very knowledgeable as well. He, he um, I mean, my back background's electronic engineering, and yet you know you can have a conversation with him about earth and electrical grounding, and he he knew it fucking fully. And he's not even a, like not a degree guy. He's just he's learnt it all. He's, he's a very very talented guy. Wow. There's an interesting thing with your sound in your band as well. The fact that you use Rickenbackers the whole way through. And you're I do. Quite a, yeah, you're quite a heavy band. What was it behind that? Oh, well, so, okay. Well, so Tim uses a Rickenbacker copies, which is probably the reason we never had Rickenbacker offer us a deal um, <laughs> or anything, sponsor deal. Um, so Kim's always used the Ibanez Rickenbacker copy, and we've actually preferred them, to be quite honest. Rickenbacker won't like to hear that, but we always thought it had a better mid sound than ricky's um and i had a rickenbacker basically because uh, it was part of my past i'd been i had a stratocaster oh well i had a really shitty 98 dollar stack high i think it was called when i was a kid i saved up for a 1978 fender stratocaster i had that i joined a band that was more you know we were really into the sort of a bit of punk, but also the Who, the mods, the mod scene. And, I mean, I loved the Who. And I was like, fuck it, I'm getting a Rickenbacker because I'd seen one and I loved them. I just loved the way they look and I loved the way they sounded. So I used to play that in a band that played ostensibly blues and Motown yeah. stuff. But I just never wanted to change it. So when I went to do the Mark of Cain, I was just like, fuck it, I'll just use this. And it was interesting because, you know, you sort of, I was getting the sound I wanted, and so there's no reason to change to anything. And, and then you just notice that shit, nobody fucking uses these. I mean, Fagazi did. I didn't know, you know, Fagazi. Oh, really? Gee uses, yeah, Gee uses uh, Rickenbacker, and, and, and so does Ian Mackay occasionally. Yeah, they were the only band I really came across that that, ha- that sometimes used them. Um, and it is an odd thing, but um, it's distinctive. It's such a good sound, yeah. Well, that... The red Ricky, I've got a black one as well, which I've actually just had had the pickups dipped in wax because it was squealing like a pig and it was the reason I wasn't using it that much, but it's behaving itself a lot better now. My red Ricky that I bought in like 1982 for $1,050, and that was brand new and they're like ridiculous now. Wow. Um, four, four and a half grand or something, but that just has a really nice sound to it i almost feel like i was lucky i got that guitar because i've not necessarily got that sound of, out of some other rickies that one has its own little beautiful sound that i like mm. i've been studying your brother's bass how has he got it strapped onto himself i can't there <laughs> seems to be no strap there it's <laughs> this is just levitation and control of the mind and yeah. okay so when th- this takes us up back in 1987 <laughs> when Big Black toured Australia and we played with them, we noted that they didn't have guitar straps. And Tim was really taken with it. And that was part of the conversation we had with our Beanie and also um, the other guys in the band. 
and uh, San Diego Durango as well. And it was like, how do you, how did this work? And I said, well, I think it was San Diego Durango had a bad back or something. And so they went, he went to some sex shop, a leather sex shop, and he had them <laughs> make this wraparound um, waist guitar strap that then they all adopted. And he was like, fuck, that's pretty good. So he ended up, I don't know, he located somewhere really, really long bass strap, and then he wrapped it around and he was he said, fuck it, I'm going to do this. Um, it, it's really comfortable. Um, I've tried it and I was just like, eh, no, I'll just go for the normal over the shoulder. But, yeah, so that's a little bit of we, – we can't say that that's um, <laughs> iconically our own thing, um, but I can assure you that that's where it came from. Wow, so it's like a belt. Yeah, yeah, so it's a guitar strap belt. And um, that, But funnily enough, I'll tell you, we had someone said the other day, because you talk about where people take things from and that one of the things also when we – I think it was when we were in Chicago, our beanie loved Tim's ripples, which I think in Melbourne are called rollers. Do you know the ones, the black suede desert boots with the ripple soles? Yep, yep. I know. Like, Fuck, I like them. So when our beanie came to Adelaide, he actually bought a whole lot of ripples. And I think some of the other band did, and they used to wear them, you know, playing <laughs> throughout. And I remember someone saying to my brother, oh, you, you do wear those shoes because Steve Albini wears those shoes. <laughs> but, <laughs> no, <laughs> Albini got those shoes because that's what Kim wears. <laughs> so, you know, in case we're, you know, accused of ripping somebody else off. <laughs> Someone else's footwear. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> did you get involved with Rollins, or rather did Rollins get involved with you through Albini? Is that how that connection happened? Or no. First time I met Henry was in 80, God, 88, when the Rollins band came through Adelaide, and I was a young punter, you know, um, or maybe maybe it was 89, I can't fucking remember, but, yeah, they came through Adelaide. Um, it was an interesting gig. Um, it was an Adelaide gig for sure because there were a whole lot of dumb fucks there saying dumb fuck things, and he said, I'm never coming back to Adelaide again. <laughs> I will never tour Adelaide again. Because um, they did two nights at a place called La Rocks, and I think there was some racist comments coming out from the crowd of, about some music that was being played. It was just like, get this end stuff mm. off, right? And he was just like, oh, my God, what a backwards fucking backwater town. I'm never coming here again. So he didn't, and he, he missed Adelaide a few times. And then I think he went back there for a spoken word and said, oh, yeah, actually, Adelaide's not too bad. Next time he will play there. So in about 90... One or whatever it was, 1990, I can't remember. And I think it was just, again, happenstance that maybe me and Kim were back from, it might have been 92, actually. I think we were both back from overseas. And, yeah, the Rollins man was playing and they were coming from Adelaide. And so, and we got on the, um, we, we got on that tour. And I think it was an ex-manager of ours actually organised that tour. I, I, in fact, I think in the background is the guy who was managing us actually got Rollins to come to Adelaide. I reckon that's what happened. And then so we were on that. We were supporting. Right. Anyway, we played. It was a good, solid show. It was great. And we noted while we were playing that the other guys were standing, um, the Rollins band guys were standing on the side of stage, including Henry, while we were playing. And as we came off and, you know, they were getting ready to go on, they were all like, you know, hey, good guys. That was great. Fuck, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, they played. We watched and we said, wow, fucking we're wiped out by this band. What an amazing band. You know, Rollins, that, that whole band, that whole era, fuck. If no one saw the Rollins band at their prime, wow. Go to see if you can find some on YouTube or whatever. Anyway, yeah, at the end of it, 
you know, it's all finished. And Rollins comes up and he says, you know, um, normally I'm doing my, you know, my exercises, my warm-up exercises while the, you know, band's on before us. But I heard your music and I had to just, he said, I had to come and see what this band is, which was, yeah, that's a really nice fucking thing to say. Absolutely. And uh, he said, yeah, so I came out and, and, uh, and you know, he said, have you got anything out? I think um, Kim organised a, a record for him, and he and uh, and he said, "Hey, look, yeah, great, um, it, really interesting." Anyway, he he got back after that tour, I think, and he, he said he was going through all his stuff because he you know, collects all this shit on tour, and, he, and that album came out. He put it on, listened to it, and then he got in contact with um, Tim Pittman. Tim Pittman wasn't our manager at the time, but Tim was managing uh, Rollins when he came came to town. And he just said, wow, can, can you give me a contact with these guys? I'd like to put their record out on 21361, his label. Um, and, um, and it was cool. I think we even got a, a name check in one of his books when he, he wrote, you know, one of his books, he says, you know, he played with a band called The Mark of Cain last night. They were really cool. <laughs> but again, it was, it, so that was the original interaction. Yeah, and, okay. um, and I think even Chris Haskett that night, because I think I went for drinks with Chris Haskett, who's the guitarist, even that night, he said, look, I, if you guys ever want someone to produce something, he's happy to do it. Um, and then what happened is when the whole, I guess we're on Ruart and all this stuff, so talk about recording that, you know, circulated again. Well, remember Rollins said he, he was interested. And so we put it to him and he said, yeah. So we, we uh, it, it, and, you know, we're on a very, very low budget too, by the way. So the, the idea wasn't that he would come out and we would record while he's there. We would record everything we had. Then he would come out if we need to add anything, you know, from producer point of view. If he thought need anything, we'd do it. And um, but he would he would oversee. Well, he oversaw actually the lyrics, me putting vocals down, and um, the the overall mix. So yeah, I think vocals hadn't been finished, and that was one of the things. Again, having this thing in front of Rollins. Uh, well, no, that that was pretty pretty difficult until you know he put me at ease and just said, "Fuck you." Sounds like I'm doing full bragging rights at the moment. I really apologise to anyone who thinks I'm being a big head. <laughs> but it was nice to have Ron come up to me and say, you got a good voice, fucking just relax and fucking belt it out. It, it was, it was, you know, it was a recognition by a peer who you really, well, not even a peer, you know, just someone who you just really fucking value their opinion. And, you know, you think, well, fuck, this is vindication of all these years we've been working, but someone who that I really look up to who you know, he's saying, I dig you guys. That's like, what more do you want, you know? Exactly, yeah. So his mix was a big part of it, was it? Yeah, so, well, yeah, call it mix produce. So what that means yeah. is like we're, we're there, and it's very old style too, so this is on a DAT, and the desk is not a desk that's got automatic faders that move all by themselves, you know, when you're doing anything. Everything you have to do. So, you know, with our ridiculously long songs, like a seven-minute point, man, you can imagine we had to do that a lot of times because someone's supposed to cue a fader up here or someone's supposed to bring in reverb at this point. And, you know, there's all these clock time things where, you know, to get the sound. Um, so sensibly Tony Nesky, whose who's studio it was, he was the main guy at the desk, but, but um, Rollins oversaw a lot of that. Um, and, you know, yeah, Rollins was um, intrinsic to that, to that process. And it was almost, if you like, the... Call him the conductor. Yeah. You know, while it's going on, right, that needs to come up, bring that down. Oh, fuck, okay, do it again, you know. Battlesick is a very interesting album from you guys. So that was 89. Yep. 
and it was your debut record. It's very kind of, you have a very fully formed sound at that point. I can't really work out many influences. I read Joy Division a lot. It's Joy Div. To me, it's Joy Div. I, look, I, I mean, it's hard. It's, a, it's still, it's a bit of an amalgam of everything I guess I was listening to. To me, it was ostensibly sort of musical landscape type thing coming through Joy Div. I, I think at that time there was a, also I was listening to some Black Flag and Big Black, uh, The Swans. Um, yeah, a lot of stuff like that. Killdozer. Oh, God, who else? I'm, I'm just trying to think. A lot of the Chicago stuff at, at least and, you know, some of the L.A. Black Flag punk sort of stuff. Uh, Michael Gira um, from The Swans. I, anyway, it was, um, yeah, it has a, it has its style and place. And then when you get to the next record between that and the Unclaimed Prize, it's almost another, it's starting to get into the more riffing sort of stuff that you see later on, on Ill at Ease. Yeah. Um, there's still a bit of a hangover from probably that 80, um, 80s joyative stuff, but it's getting a little bit more, I don't know, punky, post-punk, whatever you want to call it. Um, in fact, I like that the Unclaimed Prize is actually, I think, is a really good record. It, as, as it still, it was, well, it didn't, there wasn't a lot of notice for it because when it was released, we weren't playing. So it got released when I was overseas and Kim was overseas. So it's not like we ever went out and toured that. Right. Okay. Yeah. So there's no, there was no big fanfare that that got released, right? It just got released while we were overseas and we came back and we played some songs off of it. But then, you know, we didn't have the drummer we had for that. And it was like, well, let's start. We'll start writing, you know, new stuff. Um, but I still think that's a, you know, it is a, a, a an interesting album. There's songs on there that I, I still like to this day. In fact, you know, there's songs on there called like UCD, Uncertainty Cast Destruction, that we'll still play as an encore. Um, and there's a number of songs on there which right now I can't remember what they are, but, yeah, we still play. What was the scene like in Adelaide back in the late eighties, early nineties, it's really good. I when I when I watch when I've watched documentaries on you know the smaller towns that had these musical happenings, like you know even Seattle, um, I really see it's very very similar. Um, there's a group of people who aren't listening necessarily to what's happening elsewhere; they're just doing their own thing. And I always felt that Adelaide didn't necessarily take its cues from the East Coast so much. I always, I, I have a theory that grunge got exported to Seattle through some of the people from Adelaide. So there you go. Because we, we called music in 84, 85, we were going to see grunge bands. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Bands like Fear and Loathing was a, were called a grunge band. But then a, a number of people who were seminal to that Adelaide scene later went to, to Seattle and, and, you know, we're friends with people. Well, they were friends with Kurt Cobain. They were friends with Mark Arm. It's just interesting that then, then there became this thing called grunge to me later. And, I yeah, I could be completely off my tree here about what I'm saying. No, I love it. You know, I, I think it, this is very interesting. And the scene then was really good, very supportive. It was there was there wasn't it wasn't an idea of like, you know, oh fuck, we got to screw this band and they can't play. Everybody used to go, hey, do you want to? You know, as soon as you were in there, you would get shows because someone would say, hey, we're doing a show here. Do you guys want to support? It was seemed very easy to get, you know, support. Um, 
I mean, of course, if you want a headline everywhere, we, that, you're being a bit of a being a bit of a wanker band to do that. But there was bands already there who were in that headline position anyway, and so you'd be happy to support them. So, you know, um, exploding white mice, they were they, they were they were top of the food chain. I'd probably say them and Lizard Train um, and the Screaming Believers were the band as well who were top of the food chain in in Adelaide. And if you could get a show supporting them, it was really 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 great. You, you'd play to a lot of people. But at the same time, also, there was a huge number of small venues that you could play at that could take 100 people, you know. There's a Royal Oak down in Hindley Street. There was the Centralia. There was obviously the Austral still going, but, you know, not so much for bands because everyone built apartments behind there because everyone wants to be in the city and appreciate the city sound, but they don't want to listen to the loud bands. The Tivoli Hotel, um, there, there was just so many places you could play. And so you could literally, I mean, we as a band, I can remember we in the 80s and probably early 90s, we would be playing sometimes, you know, Thursday, Friday, Saturday or Friday, Saturday, Sunday afternoon. We had a lot of weekends where we played three times. Yeah, that's incredible to think about nowadays. Yeah, and it went, and it wasn't, and people weren't getting like um, bored it, yes. because you'd be playing three times with a whole different diverse number of bands. So people who might not have seen you on the Friday, seen you on the Sunday. Yeah, it was really, really good. It, uh, it's, um, I think the pokies were the death now a little bit. I mean, it's hard to really pinpoint it, but I think it was once. It probably is that. There were people who would just go to pubs like Harry Butler, who, who does the DNA magazine here and used to sing for Fear and Loathing. He'd often just go to these little out-of-the-way pubs and he'd go, um, you know, could we have some bands play here? And he'd explain the idea and they'd go, oh, okay. And they'd soon work out that they were getting a whole lot of people who liked to drink. And they may have looked, you know, raucous and a bit rough, but they weren't like raucous, rough people, really. Yeah, they just got gel in their hair. Yeah, exactly. And they look a yeah. bit different. Yeah. But, you know, and so there was an avenue for people, pub owners, licensees, whatever, to make money if they wanted to in, in places where they, you know, would only have a small clientele coming through. But, yeah, I think that was it. And then when pokies came through, I mean, that's a steady revenue stream. Um, you, you know, it's just less likely to have, you know, bands at the same time. Um, and I think that was the death knell. Yeah, it seemed to be that way across Australia, like in every kind of city. Yeah. And you guys stayed in Adelaide as well, which was a good decision. Yeah. Do you have pressure to move to Sydney or Melbourne or Seattle? Um. I wanted to. I did want to move to Sydney at one point. Um, it was a long time ago, but I think it was we. We it was in the late eighties. I I was asked at one point if I wanted to drum for a band called Lubricated Goat in um, in Sydney. Yeah, and um, it. I I really I really thought about it, but I was working at the time. I just started working in engineering, and it. Yeah, I don't know. I don't think I had confidence enough to do that. Although it would have been a an interesting journey and in, in, uh, in life. Um, it might have probably killed me, to be quite honest. Um, <laughs> look, I, I worked, Kim worked, so we are always, you know, nine-to-fiving it and doing the band in the background. I think the main thing was we felt, why do we have to move? Why do we have to, yeah, almost like, yeah, kowtow to this idea that you need to be Eastern to do something? Um, and there was a bit of a pride we like the fact that we felt that we, and I could be wrong, but I always 
like the fact that I, I thought we helped pull a bit of the spotlight towards Adelaide. Again, I might be just totally blown my own yeah. trumpet. But so often in the 80s when we would, in the late 80s when we would play and we played in Melbourne and Sydney and people come up and say, and they go, where are you guys from? And we go, Adelaide. The instant response was, Adelaide? Fucking, there's no good bands that come from Adelaide. Yeah. It, and it was consistent, consistent. I could tell you, so many people said that. Even though Cole Chisel and Paul Kelly had come from there. Oh, yeah, well, we're talking about people who, you know, probably aren't, aren't really greatly informed. But, <laughs> you know, that's what used to happen. And, and um, it'd be like, I don't know, they used to really piss me off. Yeah, I bet. And uh, I think that there was a bit of a headstrong element to it. It was just like, no, fuck it, fuck it, we'll stay here. We're not going to chase this fucking ephemeral, you know, whatever it is people are looking for. We'll just play our shit, and if people like it, that's great. And that's always been the case. You, you don't don't chase it. You, you, if you're going to do your – well, it's two things. You can either be a top 40 writer and you go, fuck it, I'm going to be a top 40 writer. I'm going to write the most, you know, intrinsically shit music that everybody likes. I'm, you know, you're going to be the Maccas, the guy who invents the Maccas recipe. appeals yeah. to everybody. Or you can do your, your cuisine and you find that there's a select group of people who like it and fucking hell, that is – that is really, really great. That's that's one of the best compliments you can have is people go, oh, fuck, you do that for yourself, but I dig it and, yeah, I like it. I'm going to support you. That, to me, is sort of the way we went. So it's not, you know, I, I, and, again, I never went looking for Henry Rollins going, Henry, tell, tell us, are we okay? Are we a good band? You know, I didn't feel I needed to do that. I felt like we were writing stuff and, and the very fact that he came out of nowhere and said, hey, fucking like you guys, that, to me, was almost a vindication you know, so it's this is why, you know, when you just get so many people say, like musicians say, guys, how do you get on a fucking major label? How do you do And it's like, seriously, don't fucking worry about it. Just play your shit. Play what you want to do. Yeah. And there is a bit of a happenstance luck in it, good, good place at the right times. And, and, and there are a lot of bands that really in the mainstream, it's because they've got the right contacts. I mean, you can push anything. You can fucking paint a piece of shit, roll it in fucking glitter and... People go for it if they're told it's a real cool thing, right? Yeah. But you've got the the alternate is, you know, we're from a time where, you know, there was no internet push. People had to go out and see bands. If you were interested in music, you went out and educated yourself. So it wasn't spoon-fed. And I think that meant you, your fans who discovered you and stay with you, they're very, very, very loyal. Yeah, because they weren't sold you. They found you. Yeah, Oh, you went, you, yeah, you went something, they got sold and went, oh, fuck, well, that's gone and what's next year's thing. There are people who just, you know, and that's the thing, and I always say, say our fans are very, very loyal. We're very appreciative of it. And and um, and we always say, please, people come up. If they want to talk to us at the end of a show, we might be a bit, you know, a bit tired, but we'll always we'll go out later. Just, you know, not that fucking adulation is to go out and say hello to people who fucking supported us. Yeah, it's beautiful. Yeah, it's a, it's why people are still going out to see you guys after so many years, aside from the undeniable music. Well, thank you. That's good. <laughs> Final question, obligatory question, new album, question mark? Yeah, um, that's interesting. Definitely people were asking that. I bet. Kim and I, have, we talk about it all the time. Look, in, because... We're, when we used to be playing all the time, we'd be rehearsing all the time. And so, you, yeah, you'd, you'd get new stuff would develop naturally and organically. And these days we tend to, you know, we'll have six months. We don't see each other. I mean, I'll see my brother, but, you know, there's literal no band communication. And um, 
it's only when we start really doing these sorts of things that, yeah, I might come along and go, oh, yeah, here's a riff and uh, sideline us for fucking 30 minutes instead of practising what we should be practising and doing something. <laughs> but there are some little bits and pieces we've messed around with and recorded and um, we've all talked about it, Eli and myself and Kim, about trying to get into uh, th- just do some demoing for our own sake and see what we come up with. You know, and apply the hard scale of the the market cane quality level. We're not going to pull it down, and and if it's good, do a I don't know, do a four track. I just keep if for some reason four track appeals to me. But I'd love to go in and just do something and release it. And you know, hopefully people won't go, oh my god, what a pile of shit. Why don't these guys just stop flogging a dead horse? And I, that's the thing. I never want to get to that point where it's flogging a dead horse, and that's why I'm very careful about it. And I'd rather finish now and everyone fucking goes, oh, yeah, those guys were great, <laughs> rather than continue and people go, Jesus Christ, why didn't those guys fucking learn and give up? And that was John Scott from The Mark of Cain. And you can buy the Top 40 album Ill at Ease now from tmoc.com.au and you can also get tickets to their tour. They're playing Hindley Street Music Hall tonight in Adelaide. I think it's just called the Music Hall and it's on Hindley Street. They're also playing December 13th in Canberra at the basement, December 15th at the Metro in Sydney, December 16th at the Tivoli in Brisbane, January 13th at Frio Social in Fremantle, Jan 19th at the Croxton Band Room in Melbourne, and Jan 20 at the Hobart Uni Bar. Tickets for that at philpresents.com or tmoc.com.au. And my guest next weekend is Jamie Hutchins from Blue Bottle Kiss. Until then. Mm-hmm.